This morning I took a considerable amount of time covering what church membership involves. I don't think the time hurt anyone. We had some visitors this morning, which makes it difficult when visitors walk in on a meeting like we had this morning, but I tried to adjust somewhat that it would be profitable for them and for you. What we looked at this morning was the nature of church membership. And if you look at church membership, and that is what I looked at four years ago that caused me to see the bricks falling out of a structure that had been built, was what is church membership? And once you see the bonds that unite us together in membership here, you realize baptism doesn't accomplish it indirectly. It doesn't even affect it. It doesn't get close to accomplishing it. It must be accomplished by submission, consent, and agreement with a group. Some of you have come from churches where membership involves maybe a coming down the aisle and someone saying, I want a home in the church. And they become a name on a roll and it becomes their retirement home. What they mean by a home means a retirement home where they can rest in peace for the rest of their living days. It's a passive thing. It means my name's on a roll. It means I can go to the Lord's table. In some churches you don't need to even be a member to do that. But it doesn't, it doesn't mean the active involvement that Scripture requires in the six bonds that I laid out for you. The bond of one faith and one doctrine. The bond of submission to each other as we just tried to practice. The bond of charity. The bond of the Lord's table. The bond of church judgment. The bond of pastoral submission. And leadership. Those are six bonds that you assume the moment you ask to join a true New Testament church. And they are things not to be done lightly. They are things not to be ignored. But when we take in a member, they ought to be made known. So the members coming in know what they're getting into. And we can see their agreement with those things or not. If they don't agree with those six things, then we don't want them as members. Church membership involves that mutual agreement, mutual consent on the part of two parties. The person applying for membership, like Paul did, he tried to join the disciples at Jerusalem, and the consent of the group. The church at Jerusalem wouldn't let him join. It requires those two things. And if you will look at the references that will be in your outline, and if you'll think about what we covered this morning, the issue of whether baptism causes or results in church membership becomes very simple. It takes a whole lot more to make a church member than H2O. <laughs> Baptism does accomplish something. It's the answer of a good conscience, but it is not the means by which we join ourselves one to another. That is what Paul did in Acts 9 and what the church didn't do in Acts 9. And that's the mutual submission and agreement between two parties that make a church member. Let's look at it more specifically this evening. Joining and separating from a local church requires the individual's voluntary action. Let's look at the individual that might come before you, and the Lord willing, in an hour from now, you're going to have an individual before you asking for membership here, a saying to join the disciples in Greenville. Now, what will we do? But first of all, and the parties ought not to worry, but first of all, let's look at the individual making application. It says that Paul is saved to join the disciples in Jerusalem. Addition to a church requires the voluntary desire and seeking of membership by the party. 
No one's forced into a church. No one becomes a church member against his will. No one becomes a church member without the strong desire to be one. No one becomes a member without knowing about it and agreeing on what makes a church member. And believe me, no one wakes up the morning after baptism to find out he's, find out he's a church member. It doesn't work that way. It is a specific initiative on your part or the part of others to become a member with us. We read that when Paul tried to join at Jerusalem. The 3,000 at Pentecost, we read in Acts chapter 2 and verse 41, we read in this text that we'll refer to a number of times before we finish this study, Acts 2.41, Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. There were a number of those that heard Peter preach that got excited about what they heard and were baptized. We don't know how many. It doesn't say. It just says, Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. The 120 disciples that were already in a body in Jerusalem were increased to 3,120 by these additions. Now we know that these individuals coming and joining with the apostles agreed to more than what was involved in their baptism by what they did immediately after becoming members of this church. Look at the next few verses. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. That shows their agreement with the doctrine and with the fellowship of the apostles. And in breaking of bread, there's the bond of the Lord's table. And in prayers. And fear came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things common. Now that's something you wouldn't get out of baptism. The willingness to give up your goods and have them in common with the rest. But that was part of membership of this church at the very beginning. Under the influence of the Holy Ghost, they all had all things common. That was something they agreed to when they voluntarily joined the congregation in Jerusalem. They sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. And they continuing daily with one accord in the temple. There's the body, the one mind. And breaking bread from house to house did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. They were glad. They had a single mind about everything that we read right there. Their goods in common, the Lord's table, the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. That is obvious that they agreed and submitted themselves in those things they wouldn't have been members of that church. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Addition to a church, or becoming a church member involves the voluntary action of the party trying to join. You say, that's so obvious, why do you even have to state it? Because this church was taught, and I repeat it, a doctrine that says the church doesn't need to do anything, but a person can be baptized, and the result of baptism is membership in a church. Or, a church approves a baptism, and then once a person's baptized, he becomes a church member. If a church did approve a baptism, it certainly doesn't approve a member because there is so much more involved in membership than there is involved in becoming or being baptized. To be baptized, all you need to believe is that Jesus is the Son of God. To be a church member, there's a whole 
lot more, and I hope that's already been established. In 1 Corinthians 14, 25, we're looking at all the Bible references of how a person might join a church. We're looking at the action of the party seeking to join a group of disciples. In this text we read in verse 24, But if all prophesy, that is, preach to the understanding, and there come in one that believeth not, or one unlearned, he is convinced of all, he is judged of all, and thus are the secrets of his heart made manifest, and so falling down on his face, he will worship God, and report that God is in you of a truth. 1 Corinthians 14, 24 and 25. An unbeliever comes into the assembly. If we are prophesying, that is, preaching to the understanding and not babbling in tongues, such a person will be instructed in the way of the Lord as to what he ought to do, and he'll be instructed in things about God, and he will fall down on his face, according to this text, and acknowledge that God is in you of a truth. He will say in his heart, according to this text, he'll worship God and report that God is in you of a truth. That is what ought to occur when unbelievers come in among us. That is looking at the congregation and professing God is in you people, you, you as a congregation, you disciples of Christ, God is among you. And professing that and wanting to worship God, he wants to be part of that group like Paul did at Jerusalem. Remember the text we looked at this morning in Hebrews chapter 10 said, let us hold fast our profession. We make a profession when we join the church. The Apostle Paul made a profession of his conversion, but what does it tell us? It says the disciples of Jerusalem just couldn't believe it. They could not believe that he was a disciple until Barnabas came and confirmed his profession. Then they believed it. But the Apostle Paul made a profession because it says he is saved to join the disciples. And it says they did not believe that he was a disciple. So obviously he tried to convince them that he was. And they didn't believe it. Amos 3.3, 3, how can two walk together except they be agreed? The person coming says, God is in you of a truth. I want to worship God. I want to worship God the way you're worshiping him. I'm willing to submit in the six bonds that bind together church members that we looked at this morning. When you leave a church, the individual is also required to exercise his voluntary action, and that's withdrawing himself from a number. You apply for membership with a group, or you withdraw from a group because you no longer want to submit yourselves to the six bonds that make a church member. You may not feel bound by the one faith any longer. You may be convinced the church is in error. You may be convinced you ought not to submit to the pastor. You may be convinced you ought not to submit to the judgment of that congregation. Or whatever the cause, you withdraw yourself. It is your action that makes or does not make you a church member. And I know you're thinking to yourself, that's obvious. I hope it's obvious to you. Receiving and excluding church members also requires the action of the body. You as a group together have to act in order for a person to be made a church member or for a person to be taken out of being a church member. Remember, and let's read Acts chapter 9 again, just to see a process necessary in a church to take in members or to keep some from joining. Acts chapter 9, the Apostle Paul is baptized and has been a member at Damascus and he's coming to Jerusalem. We read of him at Damascus 
that he was certain days with the disciples which were at Damascus, and he was preaching for and with them. We come to verse 26, and when Saul was come to Jerusalem, he essayed to join himself to the disciples. But they were all afraid of him and believed not that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how he had seen the Lord in the, Lord in the way and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. And he was with them coming in and going out at Jerusalem. The testimony of Barnabas was sufficient for them. But notice, the, the Jerusalem church had some sort of means to say, whoa, we are not ready for Saul of Tarsus yet as a member. What was that process? It is when you are asked to agree or disagree with the person applying for membership. You either consent and say, we believe his testimony, we believe everything that he's agreed to so far, we believe him, we're convinced he's a converted disciple of Jesus Christ, and we want him at our table, we want him in our number, we want him in our one body, we're willing to submit to him, and we believe he'll submit to us. It requires that. Because a church, in order to be a New Testament church, has to have this procedure available to them right here. And that is to say no or to say yes. And this passage in three verses shows us no and yes in quick order once Barnabas came from Damascus. The church is responsible for members being taken into it. A church is not required to receive anyone when they are not convinced he is converted. This is our case. And if we have a group of members in a church, even if it's a small number, that disagree with someone applying for membership in this church, we will abide by their consciences. We will abide by their consciences. If they do not have anything specific but a general distrust, then they had better get over that in a hurry by means available to them. But we will be of one mind in taking in members. We're not going to have half the church thinking someone's converted enough for membership and the other half thinking he's not. We'll be of one mind in that matter. Because the Bible says enough times the church ought to be of one mind and have one judgment in matters like this. And we will as a church. Sometimes we have taken in members, and I know it, some of you have talked to me. You look at someone up here, it might be the spouse of a member. It might be the girlfriend of a member. It might be the child of a member. And I know you sit there and you look at that person you say they're only joining because they're a child of a member and that parent is putting pressure on them to join. Or they're joining because they're someone's girlfriend and they know if they don't join they can't marry so and so. I know how you think. I think the same way. Why? The only reason Josie Kruger is joining the Greenville Church is because she has to. Let's name someone specifically. Did that thought ever go through your minds? Sure it did. But what you do in a moment like that is you believe and you hope all things. Right. But now if you can't believe and if you can't hope it, then raise your hand when I give you the opportunity and we'll stop it. They did at Jerusalem. They stopped it and if we've got to stop it, we'll stop it. And someone like Josie or Catherine or anyone or the next child that we have baptized and face membership in this church. It'll be your choice. If we have to set them down and they have to wait a week or two weeks or a month or three months, we'll do that. But the church has to agree in taking in members. 
it's the same process we'll go through if we exclude someone and they through repentance clear themselves of the matter and we're going to take them back in. The church has to be convinced that they have altogether cleared themselves in this matter. One year doesn't mean anything unless you think it means something. Listen, we've excluded how many? I don't even remember anymore. It's quite a number. And they've, most of them have been out for over a year. Are you ready to take them back in? A year doesn't mean a thing unless their repentance over that year is enough to convince you that they've suffered enough and they've cleared themselves altogether in the matter. And not until then will they be taken back in. And you'll be of one mind on that also. And that's what we read about the fornicator over there in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul simply told the church, and they had to do it, they had to take him back in by a certain process of showing him a treatment that they didn't give to those outside the church. Separation. When we put a brother out from this church or a sister out from this congregation, it is the reverse process of taking one in. We take them in by the mutual consent and agreement that they're fit at our table. We put them out by the, by the mutual and uni, unanimous judgment that they don't belong with us because of the testimony of Scripture. We read it this morning. I don't want to turn you to passages we already know. 1 Corinthians 5, verses 12 and 13 tell us where Paul said, put them outside the church. You're responsible to judge those within. God judges those without. Therefore, put them out. It's a church action. What I'm laboring to accomplish, which I know you're thinking doesn't need to be accomplished because we already believe it, but believe me, it needs to be done is that it requires your action as a church to make a member, and it requires the action of the person applying to make a member. And it is their mutual agreement together about the things that I covered this morning that makes a church member. And it's the undoing of all that that takes a person out of a number. But it requires the action of the person involved and the body. And at some point, that relationship has to be established. At some point, that agreement comes into existence. At some point, the congregation <coughs> makes known, we agree, we receive you, you are now one of us. And Acts chapter 9 is a passage I don't ever want you to forget. It is there for our learning. It is there to show us a church turning down a man who became the greatest of the apostles from membership at the church of Jerusalem. They turned him down. Then they took him in. That shows the church controls whether a person becomes a member or not. God cannot make a church member. God cannot make a church member. You make church members. You can make a church member of an unregenerate man. And he will sit at the Lord's table right along with the rest of us. Just like Judas accompanied with Jesus Christ for three and a half years and no one knew that he was an imposter, even at the very end. Now as far as that person participating in any spiritual blessings that, that come from a church relationship or having any gift, but I'll tell you Judas had gifts. Judas is a case you ought never to forget. He had gifts. They could not figure out who Jesus was speaking of even at the very end when Jesus said, one of you shall betray me. And even when Jesus said, he who dips his sop with me is the one that will betray me, they still couldn't figure that out while Judas dipped. It doesn't say much for them, but it says a whole lot for Judas, doesn't it? He had put on one great show. 
You can make a church member of an unregenerate man. I hope we'll never do it. And that's why we measure things outwardly that God's given us to measure. Every, every organization or relationship in society exists the same way. If, you, if Jim Edwards goes to work for PYA Monarch in the next three weeks, guess what he'll do? He'll go through the exact same process that a person goes through to become a member of this church. He will find out what they expect from employees. He will say, I want to be an employee for you. And he will submit to all the things they require of an employee. And they'll say, we want you to be an employee for us because we believe that you're going to do what we expect of you. It will be mutual consent and mutual agreement between two parties that will make Jim Edwards an employee. And the day he decides that he doesn't any, want to, any longer want to abide by those bonds, he will take himself out of employment with PYA Monarch, just like he's doing with DSI. Every relationship in society exists this way. You say, not marriage, not the way you preach it. You preach parents arranging marriages. Listen, if that woman doesn't want to marry the guy, there's nothing he can do about it. Eventually, something's going to break apart, and he won't have much of a wife. You know, there's women that stay at home with their husbands and dwell in the same house with him that are not wives and that don't submit, that are not wives in the full sense of the word. They can leave also. It requires mutual submission. Every relationship in society, even your children, as they reach age, must make a voluntary choice whether they will abide by your rules in, under your roof or not. Every relationship works this way. This is common sense. Do you know how simple this is? It's as simple as men knowing they'd rather go to bed with a woman. And it's, it's as simple as men knowing that they ought not to have long hair because it's a shame. And it's as simple as men knowing they ought not to jump off cliffs without parachutes. <laughs> it is things nature teaches us. Right. Nature teaches us that a relationship between people has, has to occur by agreement and consent between the two parties. Amen. How can two walk together except they be agreed? Try to form a new church. Let's say we've got people coming out of several Southern Baptist churches in Greenville. We've, we've got ten of them. And they're sitting around in a room someplace. And there's a pastor there and they're all trying to figure out whether they want to have a church or not. What kind of a process do they go through to decide whether they're going to have a church or not? Do they all get rebaptized? And when they come up under the water and are toweling off, realize they've got a church? Or do they sit there and they go through the six bonds that I taught you this morning? They are willing to submit to what faith? What doctrine? They settle on that. They're willing to submit to each other. They all look at each other and say, I'm willing to submit to the group. I'm willing to crush my own desires for the benefit of the group. They submit to love toward each other. They submit to the Lord's Supper and the qualifications for it. They submit to judgment over each other. They submit to any pastor they might or might not have. But just think about those ten, how they would become a church. It is by that mutual agreement and consent together, let's form a church together whereby we become one body. And how do ten individuals become one body? But by agreeing together, these are the rules that will govern our one body. These are the bonds that pull us in to one unified organization. One unified body. One family. One fellowship. That's the process you go through. And they better all be baptized when they're sitting there. Because baptism is a prerequisite to doing anything like that. But baptism doesn't get that accomplished. 
Right. You could dip ten people in water and they could come up with ten different faiths and ten different ideas for a pastor. And what kind of a church do you have then? It requires that mutual agreement. <coughs> That's enough on membership. Let's look at baptism. I hope everybody understands membership. Membership, if I'm joining you, it takes every conscience in here satisfied with me. It takes my conscience satisfied with you and us agreeing together to make a church member. What does it take to get a baptism done? What is baptism? Let's look at 1 Peter 3.21. God is my witness. It's my favorite text on baptism. You can, read, you can read most works on baptism and they won't even refer to 1 Peter 3.21. I don't know why. Why did I say that? I do know why. They don't like it. They don't like it because it says baptism is a figure. They don't like it because it says baptism doesn't put away the filth of the flesh. And they don't like it because it says baptism had better be a figure of a resurrection. And there's three good reasons why they don't like it. Try to read this verse in an NIV. It'll send you laughing for several minutes. <laughs> the figure becomes Noah's Ark. Noah's Ark is a figure of baptism. Noah's Ark becomes the figure of baptism rather than baptism being the figure of Christ's resurrection. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh becomes not the washing away of the dirt of the body. Whoever you know, Was Peter really dealing with those who thought that baptism was to get clean? No. But if you're someone who teaches baptism is necessary to wash away sins, that's how you can reason out of that verse. First Peter 3.21. Another point about the reason they don't like First Peter 3.21. It is the answer of a good conscience. Do you know what that means? It means you have the good conscience before you get in the water. Amen. And they want you coming out of the water with a good conscience, but having gone into it with a rotten one. Because they want the water affecting your conscience. It's a great text. Learn it. Use it. Shine it up. It's a jewel. Amen. First Peter 3.21, the light figure. Noah's Ark was a figure, but so is baptism. The light figure. There's two figures here. Don't let them confuse them. The light figure, whereunto even baptism, does also now save us. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism is the answer of one good conscience toward God for what Jesus Christ did for that individual. Baptism is the answer of one good conscience toward God for what Jesus Christ did for that individual. The, the nature of baptism and church membership are so far removed, you can't even get them in the same room unless you're trying to confuse this issue. Baptism is the answer of one good conscience toward God. Baptism has nothing to do with you. Nothing to do with you. Nothing. You don't approve a man for baptism. You don't approve an administrator for baptism. An administrator does it. It is the answer of one conscience. Brethren, if you have to vote for a person to be baptized, do you know who's answering a conscience? You are. No one does that. There is one administrator that represents God that accepts the answer of that good conscience, yes or no. And guess what? God's already dictated the terms on which he makes that judgment. 
And that judgment is, if thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And that's all there is. And in that role, an administrator is playing the role of God in making that choice. And I do not say that disrespectfully, nor do I say that haughtily. It is one of the obligations of the ministry to look at a person who wants to be baptized and make a judgment in the stead of God if that person's qualified or not. That's, what you, that's how you're a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're doing work for him while he is seated at the right hand of God. Baptism is the answer to God of one good conscience. Look at Luke chapter 7. Let's get another text on this point. Baptism is an exciting subject. It really is. We call ourselves Baptists. The more you study baptism, the more exciting the subject of baptism is. The answer of a good conscience. Some brother said to me this morning, he knew, he knew all these different things about baptism. He studied the scriptures on baptism at 1 Peter 3.21, just added an element of value to the ordinance. In the words, it's the answer of a good conscience. I like to hear that because that's what it did for me. 1 Peter 3.21 adds to baptism more than any other text in the Word of God. It is, it is a means by which God is looking for me to do something for Him. It's how I can communicate with God. It's how we can answer God for what He did. When Jesus Christ died for our sins and put them away forever by one sacrifice and has given us the knowledge of that so that our consciences are good, they're not wandering around with a load of sin like the men in the Old Testament were. Hebrews chapter 9 talks about the, the sprinkling of the blood of Christ gives us a free and new conscience. What do we do with that? We don't go to a temple to offer some animal sacrifice. We don't shave our hair with a vow of a Nazarite. We get in water and dip ourselves. We get dipped in water. Don't go dip yourself. But you get dipped in water by an administrator. And that's how you answer God. That makes baptism exciting. Every young person in here that isn't baptized ought to be thinking about the excitement, the privilege, the honor, the obligation to answer God. God has done so much for you. What have you done for God? And the first thing He wants is for you to get dipped in water. To show a dipping like Jesus Christ was dipped into the ground for three days and three nights for your sins. But look at Luke chapter 7 where John the Baptist was baptizing. We read in verse 29, And all the people that heard him, Luke 7, 29, All the people that heard him and the publicans justified God being baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the counsel of God against themselves, being not baptized of him. When you are baptized, you justify God. That means you state, God is just. God is right for saying that I'm a sinner. The things I've been doing are wrong, and God is right in saying so. That's how you justify God. Believe me, God doesn't need to be justified in some legal way like we need to be. But God does like to be shown to be just before men. And you show that God is just. You show that you are a sinner. You show that you need to repent by repenting and being baptized. If you don't do that, you're saying, I don't accept God's opinion of me. I reject God's counsel against me. I reject what you're saying, John the Baptist. I reject the message of God toward me. Baptism is the answer to God. I agree with the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I submit to it. It is personal identification with Jesus Christ and God. 
Luke 7, 29. It is an ordinance of identity of one conscience with Jesus Christ. It is not an ordinance of identity with the church of Jesus Christ. It is an ordinance of identity with Christ himself. It just defies God. Baptism is an ordinance of identity with Christ. It is not an ordinance of identity with a group. You justify God. You don't justify a church. You answer God. You don't answer a church. It is between one person and Almighty God. Baptism is of repentance. They preach the baptism of repentance and they perform the baptism of repentance. Nowhere in the Word of God will you find them preaching or performing the baptism of church membership. It is personal repentance before God. Please hear me. Please think about it. Church membership was everyone in the room that's a member of the body here performing. Baptism, there's only two people doing anything, and the administrator is simply representing God. It is one person answering God from their conscience and thanking Him and justifying Him for what He has done for them through Jesus Christ. Baptism is of repentance. It's not of communion. It's of repentance, not of communion. You're showing agreement with no one, but agreement with God when you're baptized. The purpose is not to show agreement with men. It's to answer God. It's to justify God, not other men. Let's look at Acts chapter 8 again. Acts chapter 8. We're going to work this poor black boy over in Acts chapter 8 before we get done with this study. This Ethiopian eunuch, what a case. I cannot tell you how much Acts chapter 8 should mean to you because it is a landmark case. A landmark case is a case that is so unusual and sets a precedent of shattering effects if you don't accept it. We read about a lonely black boy in the desert so that we can understand the relationship of baptism to church membership. That's why it's there. Acts chapter 8, verse 35, Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. Thank you. And as they went on their way, they came into a certain water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Who answered a good conscience on that day? The Ethiopian eunuch did. What did he answer? He answered that this Jesus of Nazareth, that he had read about in Isaiah 53, that had died on a cross, and had died for the sins of others, and was spoken of in Isaiah 53, was the Son of God. And he wanted to answer God for that being. He wanted to show his allegiance. And he wanted to identify with Jesus of Nazareth. If thou believest, thou mayest. And what had he heard preaching about? Not election, not church doctrine, not prophecy, not any position of a church. He had heard about Jesus. And he wanted to identify with Jesus Christ. And you will find after their baptism, when they were come up out of the water in verse 39, the Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way sorrowful because he wasn't sure what church he had just joined by baptism. 
He went on his way rejoicing. And what was the way he was going? Was he going to Jerusalem? No, he was going back home to work for his boss, Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. He was going back home to Ethiopia where the gospel had not gone. There were no churches in Ethiopia. You can be sure of that. Because the gospel had not yet gone to the Gentiles. But Philip was found at Samaria where he informed them of their new member. <laughs> Philip was found at Azotus. And passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. He didn't even go back to Jerusalem and Philippi. And when you find it, read about Philip again in Acts chapter 21, he is still at Caesarea. The Ethiopian eunuch in the middle of a desert with one administrator provided by God. God Almighty looked down and saw that man who had been in the temple at Jerusalem, standing in the court of the Gentiles, excluded from the court of the Jews, because he couldn't have got into the temple being a black Gentile, but standing in the court of the Gentiles, he had come to Jerusalem to worship. The Bible tells us that. All he knew is that the God of heaven and earth was worshipped in Jerusalem. He was a proselyte of the Jewish faith. And on his way back, he's reading in the law of God, the prophets of God, Isaiah 53. God sent a man to him. He had a heart that wanted to worship God. He had a heart that wanted to answer God, but he didn't know anything except the Old Testament ritual he had heard about in Jerusalem. And God sent him an administrator who sat down and said, Isaiah 53 is not about Isaiah. It's about a man named Jesus of Nazareth that was crucified by Pontius Pilate and the Jews. And he is, he is the Son of God. And that eunuch said, see, here's water. What does hinder me to be baptized? Let me identify with that Jesus Christ. And Philip said, if thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest not know I'm repeating myself of what you think about what we're talking of. They are in the middle of the desert without anyone around to approve, disapprove, or otherwise, because the only one that counts is the answer of the eunuch's conscience and the approval of God's administrator. Right. You show me one case that you can even misconstrue in the word of God where a church approves baptisms. If a church approves baptisms, then it's the answer of their good conscience, says plural. It's the answer of a good conscience toward God. Recently, when Catherine was baptized, I told those that came, and I believe I told everyone else later, there was I didn't even need you. We do it because it is good for all of us to see a baptism, but there is no need for it. I could have baptized Catherine without anyone else, and what is my scriptural basis for that? Acts chapter 8, where we're at right now. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 21, it's the answer of a good conscience. I don't need you there to do it. If you've got an administrator and a person that's been baptized, you've got two witnesses. And when you've got a person applying for membership, you don't need two witnesses of their baptism because if you can't believe them, they've been baptized. How can you believe anything else they say? Now, if you don't believe anything they say, then we've got a different case. You know what case we have? Saul of Tarsus. You don't believe anything they say. You didn't believe he was baptized. You didn't believe he was a disciple. You didn't believe he had preached at Damascus. That's, that's a different case. It's an administrator and a subject. And that's all you need, and that is what the Bible teaches. Baptism is an individual ordinance. Do you catch that? Baptism is an individual ordinance. Mm -hmm. An ordinance is something, something 
God has ordained or commanded that we ought to do. But it's something that God commands or has ordained for individuals to do toward Him. Baptism is an individual ordinance. The Lord's Supper or Communion is a congregational ordinance. It is not an individual ordinance. Right. When we come together, and this is why we practice closed communion, this is another one of the reasons. Communion is not simply providing wine and bread for individuals to remember the death of Jesus Christ. It, it's more than that. Communion is not simply a public provision of wine and bread for everyone to sit there in their own little world and remember the death of Jesus Christ. It's more than that. Communion is a statement among all of us as we commune together. When you come together, you're to do this. We don't take it around and have communion one at a time like the Catholics do. We do it together because it shows our common union around the death of Jesus Christ. It shows our unity in Christ's death. It shows that in that blood of Christ, in that bread of Christ, we are united in what we believe. We are communing together. That's why we are obligated to put out from that number any that would cause that communion to be taken with the leaven of malice and wickedness. It is a corporate ordinance. It's a collective ordinance. The group keeps that ordinance. But that ordinance is the ordinance of church membership. Church membership is communion. Communion is church membership to a great degree. Now look at these two ordinances. One is a collective ordinance that we all do together with one another communing around the Lord's table. Baptism is an individual ordinance by which you answer God. Right. You don't do the same thing at the same time like that when they're two different things. Baptism doesn't cause a corporate relationship to, re to resolve. Baptism, what, does bat what is the result of baptism? God gets an answer of a good conscience. What's the result of communion? Or what's the purpose or design of communion? The, the unity and the statement of unity around the person of Jesus Christ at his table and his death. Two very different things. Look at Matthew chapter 28. Baptism is an individual ordinance. The Lord's Supper and membership is a corporate ordinance. One can be done by... One can occur with two men in the middle of a desert. Isn't it neat? Acts chapter 8, the way it's set up. You've got an individual going back to Ethiopia. He's all alone in the middle of a desert. And Philip's taken out there by the agency of the Spirit of God and removed by the agency of the Spirit of God. There, all by themselves, baptism can occur. Could the Lord's Supper have occurred? No. That would require a church. That would require the bonds being established between a group of people as they would come together and commune. You will never find communion taking place between two people in the middle of the desert, but baptism certainly can Let's look at the commission given to the apostles of Christ as they went out in evangelism. Matthew 28, verse 19, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Three steps in evangelism. Teaching, baptizing, and teaching. What teaching comes before baptism? What teaching comes after baptism? 
How do we know? You can look at Acts chapter 2 and the, and the sermon of Peter on the day of Pentecost. What did he preach? That same Jesus that ye have crucified, God hath made, both Lord and Christ. Jesus is the Son of God. What did Philip preach to the eunuch? He preached unto him Jesus. That is all that needs to be taught before baptism. Because it's an individual ordinance of identification with Christ. A person doesn't need to know a thing about a church. A person doesn't need to know any of the obligations of a church. He might not know a thing about the Lord's Supper. In true evangelism, he wouldn't. Because you'd preach about Jesus, and God's demanded the answer of a good conscience, and you'd baptize them, and all they'd know is that Jesus is the Son of God. But by submitting to the ordinance of baptism, you've got the character of a man who's going to listen to everything else too. And that comes later. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Everything else. Communion. Church membership. Loving one another. Submitting to a pastor. And so forth. Raising your children right. Loving your wives. And all the things that God commands us in the New Testament are taught after baptism. You read in Acts chapter 2 in the day of Pentecost, those people didn't have any idea what the church of Jesus Christ was. But they ended up in it later after their baptism. All they were taught is that Jesus was the Son of God. They came together not knowing what was going on. Peter preached a very simple message about Jesus. That's what they heard. That's what takes place before baptism. Now, if that's what takes place before baptism, how in the world do you baptize a person and call them a church member when they come up out of the water when they don't even know what a church is in many cases? If you'll pay attention, you're just going to hear reason after reason after reason as to why baptism doesn't result in church membership. This is just one more reason. What Peter preached in the day of Pentecost wouldn't have got people to give up everything they owned and had all things in common. That type of preaching comes after baptism. Since baptism is an individual ordinance between a repenting sinner and God, then it cannot result in church membership, which requires congregational action. Hopefully you can see that very simple point. Look at Mark chapter 1 and verse 4. You should be there. Mark 1 and verse 4. John did baptize in the wilderness and preach the baptism of church membership. <laughs> doesn't read that way. John did baptize in the wilderness and preach the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. One person at a time. One person at a time who was truly repenting of his sins showed that to God. <laughs> By answering God and justifying God in repentance, which is shown in baptism. Baptism is the witness and sign of repentance. That's what John preached. Water baptism is the evidence and sign of repentance and the remission of sins. It is not the instrumental cause of church membership. These texts never even talk about church membership. You can't find them stuck together. They are so far removed. The one text that has baptism in addition to a church, Acts 2.41, will take care of when we get to it. It is simply describing two different events that took place on that great day of Pentecost, and that is the only reason the words, and the same day, are even in that verse. Because that chapter starts out with, and when the day of Pentecost was fully come, that was a landmark day in the history of the New Testament church. And on that day, 
How many ever gladly received the word of Peter were baptized? And on that day of Pentecost, there were added to the 120, 3,000 new disciples of Jesus Christ. And you can prove no more from that text than what I just said. 15,000 could have been baptized. 200 could have been baptized. You cannot prove 3,000 were even baptized from that text. I tend to think there were 3,000 baptized, but I certainly wouldn't try to prove it because that isn't what the, what the Holy Spirit's even trying to communicate. The Holy Spirit's just trying to communicate three and a half years of work by Jesus Christ left 120, and on the great day of Pentecost when God gave His Spirit, 3,000 were added to those disciples. They could have been baptized by John the Baptist three years earlier. Some of them. Peter could have baptized 5,000 that day with 2,000 joining and another 1,000 that John the Baptist had baptized joining, making up the 3,000. And the rest that Peter baptized that didn't join went back to the countries that they were from, if you read Acts chapter 2. They were from all over the known world. It doesn't teach that 3,000 were baptized and because of that baptism they became church members. You've got to really change that verse to get that out of it. You don't really have... You don't just have to really change that verse. You really have to change the whole Bible. Because the Bible describes baptism as an individual ordinance between a person and God and church membership is a whole different thing. Let me move to another point. Baptism is a ministerial ordinance. Church membership is a congregational ordinance. Whether a person becomes a member of this church or not is something you are responsible for, not me. Whether a person gets baptized or not is something I'm responsible for and not you. Right. There is a differentiation in the Word of God of those duties. A gospel minister approves candidates for baptism. The Philip said, I mean the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, We need to find a church that will vote and give me approval to do it. No. <laughs> if Thou believest, thou mayest. Do you know what it requires? A believer and an administrator that believes the believer in the place of God. It does not take a church. God never gave churches the responsibility to baptize. God gave his servants the responsibility to baptize. John the Baptist didn't go find a church, join himself to it, and hope they'd call him to the full gospel ministry so that he could go baptize. God called John the Baptist to be a baptizer. God's called all of his ministers to be baptizers. They are to go and teach Jesus, baptize in the name of Jesus, and teach all things whatsoever Christ has commanded we ought to do. Ministers do that. It is a ministerial ordinance, but the Lord's Supper, brethren, is something you control. It is a church ordinance. You sit at it as a church, and you determine, by the word of God, who should be there with you and who should not. And they are two separate things. Let's look at just a few references on the fact that baptism is a ministerial ordinance. Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. Verse 7, this is John the Baptist. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, verse 7 of Matthew 3, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee, from the wrath to come, and he goes on and preaches down through verse 12 as to why they were going to receive the judgment of God. Notice, John the Baptist could accept to baptism, 
John the Baptist could reject from baptism. John the Baptist made the decision. He didn't baptize 20, tell them to stand in the bank, and when the 21st person came, said, now you 20, would you please vote, and if I've got 11, I'll baptize this next candidate. He took them one by one because he was an ambassador of Jesus Christ, preaching the message of Christ. I no more ask you for permission to preach about Jesus Christ than I will ask you for permission to baptize. It, 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 is, it is almost beyond your imagination because we've been sitting here independent and free for all these years to think of a ministry being hobbled and handcuffed by a church. So that, if you people wanted to start practicing baptism for the dead in agreement with the Mormons, and wouldn't give me permission to baptize, as a servant of Jesus Christ, I am neutered. I am neutered. I would have to withdraw from this church in order to obey my captain, who's commissioned me to be one of his soldiers, and by obeying my captain to be one of his soldiers and to be a faithful one, I'd get a dishonorable discharge from my captain's army so that it'd be hanging out there with no authority as a minister of Jesus Christ. Find that in the word of God. Jesus Christ gave authority to his servants. He didn't give authority to his churches. There's one group of Baptists that have spawned another group of Baptists that teach this. They are the landmark Baptists who have spawned the primitive Baptists who teach from Matthew 28 verses 19 and 20 that ordinances are all in the church. That's because they hold to a lineage of churches, they claim, that go back to the apostles. God never promised a lineage of churches. There is no link, chain link connection of churches because churches don't start churches. Ministers start churches by evangelism. Would you find a church that's called an evangelist in the Bible? Ministers are called evangelists. But the landmark Baptists were a group of Southern Baptists who got this idea from a few main teachers they had about a hundred years ago that there is an automatic succession of churches back to the church at Jerusalem. Now, they can't show it. They can't even show one hundredth of the chain. But they try to believe it. And they put all the ordinances in the church. And the church controls preaching, baptizing, and everything else. Where is that in Scripture? Look at Mark 13. Mark 13. I am a servant of this church. I am a member of this church. But the authority by which I serve this church does not come from the church. It comes from Jesus Christ. Amen. The authority by which David served Israel came from God. God made David king. But Israel also submitted to David's oversight. God made me an elder. God made me a bishop. But you submit to me as your pastor. It, it, it's just God made a husband. God made a husband with authority over a wife. And the wife submits to that authority. But the authority does not come from the wife. The authority comes from God. Mark 13, verse 34. For the Son of Man, this is Jesus Christ, is as a man taking a far journey, who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to every man his work and commanded the porter to watch. Jesus Christ left authority in his house, in his kingdom, to ministers, to his servants. Look at Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. 
Ephesians 4.11, when Jesus Christ descended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. And where were these gifts given? These, these gifts are then listed in verse 11. He gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Those are the gifts that Jesus Christ gave. And those gifts were given for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. But the gifts themselves are given to individual men who are the servants of Christ. They are Christ's ambassadors. They are Christ's soldiers. Baptism is a ministerial ordinance. Philip can be taken by the Spirit of God. Let's go back to him. I said we'd rub him. Philip can be taken by the Spirit of God into the midst of the desert. You find a man there and he needs no church authority to take care of the eunuch's problem. He baptizes him in the name of Jesus because he's a servant of Jesus Christ. And that's all that is necessary. Someone to dip the poor man in water as an ambassador of Jesus Christ. And that man goes on his way, and I'll tell you, he went on his way rejoicing. Which will play an important role in a little while. Probably not this evening. He went on his way rejoicing because God was with such a baptism. But the authority that Philip had to baptize him came from God himself. Ananias baptized Saul of Tarsus by what authority? I'm sure he had letters there from the church at Damascus telling him, when you meet Saul, baptize him. He had a message from God Almighty. There's a man coming to your house who's going to be blind, or you're going to go to his house. He's going to be blind. I want you to give him his sight, the Holy Ghost, and make sure he gets baptized. It is authority given from God. It only takes an administrator and a subject anywhere on this planet in any water, anywhere, deep enough to get a body under it, churches do not approve baptisms. Another ordinance, just to give you another one to think about in looking at ordinances, whether they're congregational or whether they're ministerial. Ordination. The granting by the laying on of hands of the authority to perform the ordinances of Jesus Christ. Does that come from a church or does it come from a minister? What do we read in the Word of God? Elders form a, can form a presbytery and lay hands on. A elder, an elder, can lay hands on and give the gift of the ministry, the authority to execute the office of an elder for Jesus Christ. Ministers do that. Churches don't do that. Churches don't have the ability to qualify a man for the ministry. Churches don't have the authority to do that. Nowhere are they ever instructed to it. Nowhere are they ever given the credentials for a minister. Ministers qualify ministers. And some of you have come from church groups where churches have approved ministers, and you know the excesses that it brings. Somebody in the church who brings their Bible to church every Sunday is thought to be some spiritual giant by the little old ladies in the congregation, and they call for an ordination. Or the deacons get moved by some friend of theirs when some poor minister is shaking in his boots, realizing if that guy gets out there on his own, it's going to be hell for some church. How many times have you seen it? I'm not trying to put ideas into your mind, but you've told me about some of those things you've seen. Men ordained because a church likes them, a church thinks they're qualified. Where in the Bible is that? The qualifications for the ministry are given to other ministers who are able to judge whether a man is qualified or not. Did your children choose you? 
Or did God choose you for your children? You say, what does that have to do with the ministry? It's the same relationship. When was the last time sheep chose their own shepherd? How many here have ever heard the arm of a church? Do you know what happens? Those that require baptism to be a church ordinance make New Testament evangelism impossible. Without a minister going out and creating an arm of a church. Have you now would you show me in the Bible an arm of a church? Twist this thing off my body and lay it out there someplace. We've got the arm of a church. What kind of a what what kind of an existence is that? Do you know what that is? It's because that arm cannot exist by itself without being tied to some church. All the ordinances in the church. Because those first baptized evangelistically. When you, let's say you were going out to baptize three or four evangelistically or so forth. A minister who, who subscribes to the fact that baptism is a church ordinance. What do you do? You either create non-resident members at a distance of 1,000, 5,000, or 12,000 miles. Or you create the arm of a church. Now I came from a church that was started as the arm of a church. Some of you are members of the trunk. We were the arm. Do you remember that? We were the arm of a church. What did... <coughs> the arm never had communion with the trunk. Am I correct? The arm never had communion with the trunk. The arm never knew who was in the trunk. The trunk never knew who was in the arm. It was a game. It was a caricature. It was a monster. The Bible doesn't know anything about it. And that was a group of people that could easily have been formed into a church bang, right in the spot. Some of you are well familiar with that. Christ's ministers who go by the New Testament and not by some preconceived ideas of <coughs> procedure can baptize without creating monsters with arms. Thanks be to God. Amen. Eunuchs can be baptized and they can go on their way rejoicing and churches can be started where there are sufficient baptized converts to make one and you don't need a church's approval nor a church's trunk to get it done. You need a minister with authority from Jesus Christ. Amen. If churches control the gospel authority of a minister, then he is a neutered puppet with the delegated authority of a Prince Charles. Prince Charles is a glorious title, isn't it? Prince of England. What could he do? Except use a lot of taxpayers' money. That is to say he has no authority. A minister that is subject to a church in those areas for which he is responsible has no authority if he's subject to the church. The church goes into error. What does the minister do? A minister in that system, would you put yourself in his shoes for a second? You are in the shoes of a minister who believes his authority comes from the church. He is facing preaching a subject that he know is, knows is not going to go over well with the church. He has two choices. He knows he's been called of God and he wants to fulfill that call as a soldier of Jesus Christ. He wants to be a soldier of Christ. He can compromise his message to maintain his relationship with the church so that he can continue to function as a soldier of Christ. He's forced to compromise. Or he can leave that church and lose his office and lose his work because he can't function without that church. 
Why a minister without a church could put an advertisement in the newspaper, invite people to a Bible study, preach the gospel, baptize converts, and form a church, and supersede any church that withdrew from him. And that's what they ought to do. And if they had that freedom, they wouldn't sit there trembling in pulpits because of going against the majority of the congregation. You cannot fully appreciate what I'm saying until you are here thinking about it. I would like to stand some of you men up who are masters in your job place and ask you what you would think if you got your authority from your employees and see if you like that idea. Some of you men have lots of people reporting to you. They had to approve you for what you did. Wouldn't that turn the apple cart upside down? The differences between congregational rule and ministerial rule come out on this point. A church no more governs itself than a flock of sheep govern itself. Flocks of sheep have shepherds. Churches have pastors. Families have fathers. And so do churches have rulers just like fathers rule families. God creates that office. God creates that authority. And if those children go astray and refuse the authority of that father, that father can go out and create a new family. He is not subject to that family. And all of you men ought to relish that. You are not subject to your wife's submission. You can go out and get yourself another wife if she will not submit. You do not have your position from your wife you have your position from God Almighty who grants authority. One last point between baptism and church membership. And we'll close for this evening. We've pointed out that baptism is an individual ordinance. It's one conscience to God like the eunuch. Church membership is a corporate ordinance. I've pointed out baptism is a ministerial ordinance. Communion is a church ordinance. You control the Lord's table. I don't. I do not control the Lord's table. I am subject to every rule of that table just like you are, and you can exclude a pastor as fast as you can exclude any member. Because when it comes to that table, I am but a member, other than the administration of that ordinance. My partaking of it is at your pleasure, according to Scripture. But when it comes to baptism, it is not at your pleasure. It is at the pleasure of God's administrator to take a eunuch and to baptize him. I want to look at the fact that baptism is a figure of something. God tells us what baptism is for in the Bible, and he did not tell us it was for membership. It doesn't even symbolize anything close to membership. But it does symbolize some things. It symbolizes three things. Look at Romans 6. Romans 6. This is not wasted study. We all can use a reminder on the importance and purpose of baptism. And everyone in here who's not baptized, I hope they're paying double attention to what I'm saying. Romans chapter 6, verse 3, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. The first thing baptism symbolizes is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Verse 3 tells us, Know ye not that so many of us, 
As we're baptized into Jesus Christ, we're baptized into his death. Verse 5 tells us we were planted in baptism in the likeness of his death. Verse 4 tells us that, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead, so we're raised up. 1 Peter chapter 3 told us baptism was a figure of the resurrection of Christ. First of all, baptism symbolizes Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. I am going over this point because the Bible tells us why we have baptisms. Right. We should find somewhere in these verses about baptism that it causes church membership or that it results in church membership. What we find is that it gives a picture of what Jesus Christ did for us. His death, his burial, and his resurrection. That is the first symbol of baptism. But there is another symbol, and it's in verse 4. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead with the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life, a resurrected life. Baptism is a symbolic picture of a resurrected life. This chapter starts out with Paul answering an objection that men would raise. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? I mean, is it all right for us to go ahead and keep sinning because there's so much grace with God? No, God forbid, Paul says. You that have been baptized, baptized your old man. You buried your old man. You buried your former way of life. You buried your sins, right. and you were raised out of that water to walk in a new life, in a resurrected life. It is a burial and a resurrection of the old man and the new man. Burial of the old man, resurrection of the new man. Burial of sins, resurrection to righteousness. Burial of an old dead way of living, resurrection to a new way of living. That is the second symbol of baptism. The third symbol is in verse 5. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Baptism, and I could add 1 Corinthians 15, 29, else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead? Having preached on that several weeks ago, the third symbol of baptism is that we have hope of a future physical resurrection of our bodies. Amen. Baptism is one terrific answer to God. It is a great ordinance. We show a picture that God's looking for of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. We show a picture of our death, the sins, and our old way of living to walk in a new life. And we show a picture that we believe there is a future resurrection for our physical bodies and that we are not without hope in this world, but that we have the hope of the resurrection. All of that is wrapped up in baptism, but brethren, there isn't a thing to do with a relationship to a church. The Ethiopian eunuch can do that out in the middle of the desert because he's telling God, here's what Jesus Christ did for me, here's what I'm going to do for you, and here's what I'm hoping you'll do for me at the last day. You'll raise up this black body of mine. And God be praised, that's what baptism does. And that eunuch went on his way rejoicing because God was with him by his Holy Spirit. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Baptism is an individual ordinance. It's a ministerial ordinance. It is a symbolic ordinance. And when looking at all three of those points, it is unrelated to church membership. May God bless us to see the difference. Christ wanted to measure men? You say, show this to me. i got to see this. Luke 16, verse 10. He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. And he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. If therefore ye have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, Who will commit to your trust the true riches? 
And if ye have not been faithful in that which is another man's, who shall give you that which is your own? Those three verses contain so much wisdom. If you haven't been faithful in the little things of life, like earning money, you'll never be faithful in the big things like loving my daughter for 50 years. If you haven't been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, which is a base thing, money, you'll never be faithful in the true riches of a God-given woman. If you haven't been faithful in the things that are another man's, your employer's things, if you don't want to get there early, and if you don't want to stay late, and if you don't want to work through your lunch break, and if you don't want to better yourself for that employer, and if you don't want to serve that master, you'll never take care of something that's your own. Is there wisdom in those three verses? Cash. Cash. Romans 12:11 tells us not to be slothful in business. It is an ordinance of the New Testament that men are to work hard in their professions. Do you know what a dowry proves? A dowry is cash. Do you know what cash proves? If a young man has cash, it proves four things quickly. The diligence to earn it. Ever heard this before, men? The diligence to earn it. The temperance or self-discipline to save it. The patience to accumulate it. And the wisdom to invest it. Do you mean to tell me that by seeing cash, you can make a judgment about a man that he's got diligence, temperance, patience, and wisdom. Yes, you can. Why is God so wise? It's the concept of a dowry that I'm teaching, not the actual dowry. How do you measure the young men that are going to come and ask or seek to marry your daughters? How much was a dowry in the Bible? The amount of a dowry depended on the bride's father. Listen, if he didn't want to lose his daughter, he could double the price, triple the price. He could ask whatever he wanted. But remember, if you raise it too high, you may have a 70-year-old daughter on your hands. The minimum for a virgin in Israel was 50 shekels of silver. Exodus 22 tells us that. A virgin got 50 shekels of silver. That was the floor. Now, if she was good-looking, had a good personality, her father had taught her how to dress, and she knew etiquette, she probably got a whole lot more because there were 50 guys lined up at the picket fence out front in an auction. But the minimum was 50 shekels of silver. 50 shekels of silver. This doesn't work as fast. 50 shekels of silver in the Word of God were sufficient to buy a threshing floor, a field, and a yoke of oxen. Do you know the only other occurrence of 50 shekels of silver in the Bible is when David bought those things from a man where the Ark of the Covenant was resting. Do you know what those things are called? The means of production. What did Jacob agree to for a dowry? He didn't agree to it. He offered it. He said, I'll serve thee seven years. What's the average earnings of a 20-year-old? 5,000, I hear one brother say, for Tommy at the pantry. Let's say 15,000 times seven years. Do you know what that amount is? It's 105 grand. Jacob was willing to do that. You say, well, Jacob was a rich man. That's why he said that. Do you know how much Jacob had when he said that? He had a staff in his hand. <laughs> he had a staff. But he agreed to work for seven years to earn his bride, Rachel. And we don't have it as easy as King Saul around here. All you have to do is go out and circumcise a hundred Philistines. Some of you clerics would think that would be a lot of fun. David did. That's why he brought back 200. 
There are complicating factors today that make an actual dowry difficult, and I'm going to be honest. It's 1989. We don't have a minimum in Scripture. If you don't have a minimum, you don't know where to start. Not only that, we don't have a going rate. The market has to determine the going rate, so what do you ask for a dowry? Well, I'm talking principle, not a specific dowry. Let me give you an idea of something just to think about. And here's the reason I give you this. The reason. The Bible says we ought to reason in the Scriptures and out of the Scriptures. The Bible teaches us that a dowry was the way God ordained for men, for fathers, to qualify the husbands for their daughters. We have seen in the Word of God, and you know I could show you many more passages I haven't shown you, but the best way to measure a man's character is to measure it financially. It's the simplest, most direct approach. We don't have dowries required in the New Testament. We don't have dowries in America. So what can a man do today? Well, first of all, you're going to have a daughter that's, you're going to have to have a daughter that's under demand, or, or guys are just going to laugh at your claim for a dowry. You're going to have to train a daughter that's worth something. Then when you say the word dowry, it doesn't matter. Do you remember what Shechem said to Jacob and the 12 brothers when he wanted Dinah? He said, ask whatever you will, I'll pay it. Why? Dinah must have been quite a catch in the poor sucker had fallen for. Whatever you ask, I'll pay. You train your daughter right and you say dowry, nobody's going to balk at it. How about, this is just hypothetical, you have a 20-year-old guy wanting to marry your 18-year-old daughter. You tell the 20-year-old man that he needs 25000 in cash to marry her. He wants your daughter. He has saved and worked hard all his teenage years. 25000 isn't hard to have at the age of 20. Let me tell you something. Rachel Crosby right now is on a program without any investment returns to have 45000 when she's 20. It doesn't take much a year. She's starting at 12. That's eight years. You know what it takes? It doesn't take that much a year to end up with 45000 She and I know exactly what she needs to do between now and then to have 45000 Some guy can pay a dowry for her and still be okay. I don't like that. Maybe that'll go into my account. You have a 20-year-old wanting to marry your 18-year-old daughter. You say 25000 cash, you can marry her. When you're 30 years of age, if you have taken care of my daughter well, I will have invested that 25000 for 10 years, and I'll give the whole thing back to you with earnings. And I hear the young man saying, yeah, but could you write down exactly what you want me to do so that I can get the money back when I'm 30? Just my judgment just my judgment. Do you know what kind of a screw you have in his back? Do you know how much wisdom there is in that? What 20-year-old knows how to take care of money, even if he did save some? He still is only 20 years old. At 30, you have a whole better perspective of money. Do you know what you've done by taking 25000 out of his life? In economics, it's called the propensity to consume. The more money you have, the more you want to spend. You take 25000 of his life, you're going to tighten down their first 10 years of marriage. You say, well, that doesn't sound very nice. It's the best thing that could happen to them. Right. Give it back to them when he knows how to spend it. Now, that isn't the word of God. That isn't required of you. Listen, you men are to exercise wisdom in applying the principles of the word of God. 
The law is good if a man know how to use it lawfully. There's a lot of good wisdom there. Think about how you want to qualify those that are going to be seeking your daughters. A wedding should include some identification of the groom's qualifying and the bride's qualifying. You know, there ought to be a history of the groom's character given. Why don't we, in a wedding, do you know most of the guests at a wedding don't know anything about one of the parties or both of the parties? Think about the weddings you've been to. You know nothing about one of the parties, usually, or both of the parties. Wouldn't it be great to have a brief review made of their life, their lives, especially the groom's, and how he qualifies to be a good groom? Every young man sitting there and every young girl sitting there would be impressed at the importance of what's taking place. And the question and answer session could be addressed by the father of the spouse. I would like to see the bride's father addressing the groom about his life. Is that scriptural? Abraham's servant, when he arrived at, arrived at Bethuel's house where Laban was there, the first thing he did was qualify Isaac for Rebekah by saying, God has blessed my master Abraham's house abundantly, and all that he has is Isaac's. Two verses, and the servant has set up Isaac as being qualified financially for Rebekah. You know, Boaz had a good basis for marrying Ruth. Why in weddings isn't there some statement made as to why one party is good for the other party? Why? Look at the book of Ruth. Did, Ruth, did Boaz have a good reason for marrying Ruth? She was a forward woman, at least on one night. Did Boaz have a good reason for marrying her? You don't remember. Ruth 3 and verse 11. Now, Ruth has come in during the middle of the night and laid at his feet. He wakes up frightened to find a woman laying at his feet in the middle of a field. He knows what she wants. Rather obvious. And he says to her in verse 11, Now, my daughter, fear not. I will do to thee all that thou requirest. Now, there is a woman going after a man. She's requiring him to marry her. For all the city of my people doth know that thou art a virtuous woman. Why in weddings don't we have the groom saying something complimentary of his bride? Why don't we have the groom's father saying something complimentary of the bride? There's no recognition of any honor. It ought to be done. It ought to be done. A wedding should include some sort of a public commitment or covenant. Now, there are covenant passages in the Bible, and none of the covenant passages, if you take the best one and try your best, you cannot construe it to teach vows to each other. Nowhere can you find vows between a bride and a groom in the Bible. Nowhere. Can't find it. The greatest covenant in the Word of God that binds a man to, to serve and love his wife well and a woman to serve and love her husband well is the covenant that we all have with God. And I want to emphasize that covenant. Exodus chapter 24. See, that covenant ought to be the basis for everything we do. Exodus 24. You know, there are verses like Job 31.1. Job said, I've made a covenant with mine eyes. Why then should I think upon a maid? 
That isn't a covenant to a woman. That's a covenant with himself. I have made a covenant with mine eyes. Why then should I think upon a maid? You can't take that text to teach some marriage vow where they say, I do, I do. You can't do that. Here's a covenant. And this is the covenant that makes marriages work. Exodus 24 and verse 7, And he took the book of the covenant, that's the book of the law of God, and read in the audience of the people, and they said, All that the Lord hath said will we do, and be obedient. And Moses took the blood, and sprinkled it on the people, and said, Behold the blood of the covenant, which the Lord hath made with you concerning all these words. And do you know what some of those words were? How a man's to treat his wife. This is the covenant that makes a man a good husband. This is the covenant that makes a woman a good wife. Does she want to do all that God has commanded? That is the covenant. And if you haven't determined that long before you get to the wedding ceremony, a few trite little words expressed to each other are no basis for a marriage. This is the basis for a marriage. This covenant. But there needs to be a public acknowledgement that these two are not living in fornication. They're married. Now, I've talked to the state of South Carolina in the last several weeks. This state still honors common law marriages. If we had a young man and a young woman tonight, maybe under coercion from a few of us, go home together and we leave them our house for the evening, they are considered married even in the eyes of the state of South Carolina. And they certainly would be in the eyes of God if they walked out of this place and that was understood. But you ought to hear the way the state of South Carolina states it. There needs to be a verbal acknowledgement that they are considering each other as husband and wife. That's all. Which is what a wedding is. That's what a marriage is. A public acknowledgement. She's my wife. He's my husband. You can't just live together and call it a common law marriage. Can't do that. It will not stand even in this state. There has to be that public acknowledgement. And we ought to honor that not only for the state of South Carolina, but because it's always honored in Scripture, there was that initiatory event that started a marriage, and it's called the wedding. Vows made to each other may sound pretty and nice, and women just fall in love with them, but they don't carry much weight. The first time the old man comes home, and he's really ticked off after a bad day at work, he is not going to look at that woman that he wants to take out a little bit of his frustration on and remember what he promised in some little ceremony. When you're upset at someone, you don't remember the nice things you've said to them before. But if you have looked the father of that woman in the eye and promised him a certain level of behavior, and if he's holding $25,000 in the bank that you're not going to get back, you will think twice about it. Men will respect other men far more than they'll respect some words uttered to the woman herself. Men understand dealings with other men. And a father that has properly given away his daughter with all the solemnity that should be involved and all the qualifying that should be involved, and that father looking at that young husband in the eye and that young husband trembling in his breeches and thinking about having his loins loosed like Belshazzar, he will think about that man when he tries to slap his wife across the room. There is no way a woman can ever get a man to say enough 
to counteract the anger of a bad day if he wants to abuse her verbally, psychologically, sexually, or physically. The best thing we can do is to have fathers that have the fear of God in the hearts of young husbands. You know, weddings ought to include some opportunity for pronouncing a blessing upon the marriage. We never hear the men stand up and, and bless the couple, do we? In the word of God, Bethuel and Laban blessed Rebecca before she left. They said, God make thee the mother of thousands and thousands and millions. God bless you with a big house, lots of children, as the sandwich is by the seashore. Isaac blessed Jacob with great blessings. When Isaac sent Jacob back to the same country to get his wife Rachel, he blessed him. The God of heaven bless you and prosper you. Where are the blessings? Where are the fathers? The fathers should stand and give a blessing at weddings upon the couple and call God's blessing down upon them. You don't need a minister to do that. Where are the fathers? Look at Ruth. You're the, you're, no, you're not. Look at Ruth. Ruth 4. Look anyway. I, know, I thought you were there. Ruth chapter 4. A wedding ought to include a blessing. You say, well, we had a toast at our reception. You're close. That's good. That's good. There ought to be several toasts. You say, well, people could get happy that way. Well, then there ought to be several toasts. That's what a wedding is for. Ruth chapter 4 and verse 11. And all the people that were in the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses to this wedding. The Lord make the woman that is come into thine house like Rachel and like Leah. What does that mean? fruitful, which too did build the house of Israel, and do thou worthily in Ephratah, and be famous in Bethlehem, and let thy house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bare unto Judah, of the seed which the Lord shall give thee of this young woman. What a blessing! Do valiantly, prosper, be a mighty man. Why isn't the groom sent into his life with a real charge like that? This is the word of God. Wouldn't that be exciting to have a blessing like that pronounced upon you? May this woman be the mother of millions. I know the poor woman today would just turn white. But if she was a godly woman, she'd appreciate the blessing. Look at Deuteronomy 24.5. Hold with me for just five more minutes and we'll finish. Deuteronomy 24.5. I'll have to cry extra in my sleep tonight if we don't finish this study of weddings. Deuteronomy 24 and verse 5. When a man hath taken a new wife, he shall not go out to war, neither shall he be charged with any business. But he shall be free at home one year, and shall cheer up his wife, which he hath taken. The first year of marriage ought to be planned by the fathers to keep the son as free as possible from any care away from home. This text does not mean he's at home sipping mint juleps out on the porch every day for a year. It means he is not called away to war, it means he is not charged with business away from home. It means he is free from anything that would take him away from home. He's free at home to cheer up his wife. What young woman, especially in the way the Bible talks about marriage, would want to marry a man and then have him disappear? God made provision for that. The Word of God has so much wisdom in it. Deuteronomy 24, 5 is not a one-year honeymoon. It means that when you get married, you better take care not to be doing too much. You know, at the age of 20, you may be working a job, you may be working a part-time job, and you may be going to school. Do you know what?